This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Talib Vizram, and you're listening to Fast Break, a look at some of the most innovative ideas that bring about social change. This week, we're doing an end-of-year recap, where we'll take a look at what changed in 2020, from the theatre community, to education, to police reform. Then, we'll hear how the pandemic has upended the fight for labour equity by shining a glaring light on the invisible work women do. This is your Fast Break. Well, I don't have to tell anybody that this has been one hell of a year. And here on Fast Break, we covered a lot of important topics, so we wanted to highlight a few interviews that stuck out. Like many institutions in March, universities were forced to go remote. Suddenly, distance learning became the norm for thousands of college students. I spoke with Mind the Gap founder and CEO, Abby Brody, about the impact the pandemic has had on traditional higher education and how gap year learning could help fill the void. So a gap year is what we think at Mind the Gap, a step off the hamster wheel of education. Typically, students gap between high school and college. It's a year of exploration or for some, working and getting some life experience and saving for their next steps in higher education. But in the COVID time, I do want to point out that you can gap at any time and it's actually really advantageous right now for any student to gap. At Mind the Gap, we say something that's pretty controversial, but it's real. College, think back to your own college experience, what you remember, what you took from it. It's 90% party, 10% the classroom. But that is okay. Let's say it out loud. You are paying to live on your own, to have this quad-like experience. The learning doesn't happen in the classroom. It happens on the quad, in the cafeteria, at that fraternity party, where you learn who you are and who you aren't, where you push boundaries and no parent is over your shoulder with consequences or rewards. That is an essential part of learning. And that, this fall, will be gone. And you're left with 10% of your value. Well, I'm glad you stepped back from the anti-party line. I was worried for a second you might get some flack for that. No, we like the party. And my gap, <laughs> we're all about the party. The party is 90% of it, and that's okay. Gotta have the party. So a gap year is a time to just get off the hamster wheel. Why we chose to go into this, we are minding the gaps between life and schooling, because there is one. From our research, only 14% of students who enter the higher education system succeed. So let's take 100 students, 50 of them drop out within six years. So that's already a 50% dropout rate. So, and those kids are usually, 70% of them at least, paying for loans for a degree they didn't even get. And then of the ones that do graduate, the ones that succeed, half of those will earn less than $27,000 six years out of school. They will be paying off those loans for a degree that costs more than its market value. And 73% of them won't even use their degree of study. So that leaves 14% success. That would be an F, a fail. We have failed. And why we are interested in the gap year space is that when we are looking for academic interventions, we've seen nothing with the results like gap year students. Gap year students outperform by more than one standard deviation. They're more likely to get the job. They feel more mature and they're more likely to graduate and use their major because they know a little bit more about life. Because what is a K-12 experience? It's school, after school, homework, repeat. That's not what life is like. And they go into these educational institutions not knowing who they are, what they want, and they end up squandering or dropping out. 
So we are really excited about the gap year space and COVID's really accelerating change in higher ed. And we believe if we were to rewrite the education system in the United States, it would start with an experience where students are off that wheel and have a moment to pause. And part of that pause can be, is college even right for me? 2020 will most likely be known in history as the year that changed everything. And one major element of that is the state of policing in the US. After protests broke out over the killing of George Floyd in late May, there were several calls for police reform. I sat down with Raheem founder and CEO Brandon Anderson to discuss how Raheem addresses police brutality. I founded Raheem after losing my life partner and fiance to police violence during a routine traffic stop. His love was radical, unapologetic, and it completely changed my life. The officer that killed him had a long history of being violent. And I later learned that no one reported the officer because our local police department, like most of the 18,000 police departments in the U.S., requires residents to file complaints in person at the police station during business hours and sometimes in many places, say, for instance, like St. Louis, within 90 days. So as a result, only 5% of people report police violence, right? So 95% of police violence is never reported. And when police violence goes unreported, officers cannot be held accountable. So they become repeat offenders. Not only do they become repeat offenders, they escalate in their police crimes, right? So in 1999, if a police officer was shoving you or calling you the N-word, by 2007, without holding that officer accountable, that officer has grown into a person who will shoot you for not getting out of your car, for instance. The second perhaps most important part is that the policies that shape constitutional policing are not grounded in the lived experiences of the people most impacted by police violence. So a lack of clear, actionable data continues to enable police violence across the country. We were later joined by Dr. Tracy Cassie, the co-founder and senior vice president of Justice Initiatives at the Center for Policing Equity. I wanted to know from both of them what they thought about changing the structure of police forces and what has become more commonly known as defunding the police. I would say first, how about we fund black communities? There are so many things that need to be done and we always seem to be fighting over a dollar. Not to say that there's not any changes that need to happen in policing, but how about we fund black communities the way in which they need to be funded? We're in desperate need of mental health. We're in desperate need of numerous things. And it is time to stop trying to make us battle for the little dollar and do what's right. And that is put the funds where the funds are needed. I have been a proponent of defunding the police now for about a year and a half. I'm an abolitionist. I want to live in a world where there are no police. So if you're asking me about the defunding of police, I'd say that it is the genesis to what I'd ultimately like to see in my lifetime. Well, you know, now that you touch upon that, let, let's talk about that. Some people have been calling for completely abolishing police forces. What would that even look like? Well, before we get into that question, I think it's really important to understand what abolition is. The best way that I've been able to describe abolition to my friends who think I'm all crazy is the questions that we ask ourselves and when we ask them, right? So uh, the scenario that many perhaps reformists would ask is 
let's say, for instance, you're loading your groceries into the back seat and trunk of your Subaru at Sam's Club with your family. And a person who's living homeless comes up to you and says, hey, give me your groceries. He has a gun. And so the first thing that reformists like to say is, who will you call? Who will protect you? If you ask Black people who will protect you in the face of abolition, they will respond, who has protected us before? But the framework that should be applied here is why is there a man who is living homeless, no access to fresh water, fresh food, in a world that can produce 25,000 billionaires who own 40% of global wealth? How is that possible? So I love Tracy's answer. We need to invest in Black people and stop trying to solve centuries of capitalism, racism, homophobia, misogyny, ableism, and homelessness with police and by arresting people. We need to invest in the communities who have long both had the courage and the know-how to build fundamental solutions that solve the problems that both reduce crime and build community infrastructure for themselves. And Tracy, what are your thoughts about the abolition of police forces? We have police working in spaces where they, we really have to think about what is happening to the just overall structures of support, right? So when you have police officers trying to do mental health responses, when you have officers trying to do social distancing enforcement, you know, so you clearly can get a sense of what is the role of public safety and who gets to determine who is safe from who and what. And so what I really do appreciate about Brandon's words as a Black woman is that we have historically in our own communities, doctors, folks who had, you know, psychologists, people who understood and understand what those specific and unique stressors are. And I always have to go back to one of the solves for policing historically has been to diversify the ranks. And one of the conversations that we you know, are also not having in, in this same space is really about, you've got black officers on that front line with everyone else. And you also have them inside organizations as well as women and everyone else that are feeling some of the same stress and pressures in that organization that they would be on the street. And no one that I can think of, myself included, has ever had to be made to choose between protecting your community or who are you going to stand with? It's a false choice in every which way. Yet, that's the struggle. And I think what's really different about what's happening now, at least what I feel is different what's happening now, there cannot be a sort of dusting off of things and thinking that's gonna make it right. And that this is gonna be the way that we move forward. And as I said earlier, and many times this today, if policing is not fundamentally different on the other side of this, whatever that means, then we really have not learned anything. Broadway will not reopen until next summer, but until then, theatre companies have come up with some creative alternatives. Over the summer, the Public Theatre and WNYC joined forces to put on a radio production of Richard II. I had the pleasure to talk with Shanta Thake, Senior Director of Artistic Programs at the Public Theatre, and WNYC Executive Producer Elliot Forrest. Well, I'm really excited to have you both here. I like to think I'm a bit of a Shakespeare fanboy and not just because I'm English. (laughs) First off, for those who might not be familiar with it, what is Free Shakespeare in the Park 
on a regular year? Yeah, I would say, you know, the name really does say it all. It is free. It is Shakespeare and it is in the park. In this case, it is typically in Central Park in the beautiful Delacorte Theater. It is truly one of the most magnificent theaters on the planet, in my humble opinion. And it plays host to two to three Shakespeare productions, all of various size and scale, and is open for free to anyone in New York City to come enjoy it every year. And was started 58 years ago by Joseph Papp, and it's just one of New York City's best traditions. Sure. Well, I can attest to the beauty. I saw Twelfth Night there a couple of years ago. Ah, gorgeous production. Shanta, can you tell us how the public came to re-envision Shakespeare in the park? I guess Shakespeare not in the park, in light of the theater closures caused by the pandemic. You know, I think like all of us in New York in particular, at the time that COVID really started affecting all of us, that was really the hardest thing to think about was the idea that we might have to cancel Shakespeare in the park because what it means to us not just as productions, but what it really means to the heart of the institution and how so much of the mission, the vision, and the values of what is the public theater really are manifest through what we do in the summer. And it just feels like the clearest way that we can serve the city of New York. So we knew we wanted to continue it in some way. And we really made a point to go out to partners that we thought really shared the same sense of connection to the city and the city's stories. So that meant we were spending time really talking to public television, public radio, and public libraries and public parks, a lot of whom we have partnerships with already. And what came back to us after we announced that we were canceling Shakespeare in the Park officially, the first thing that people would say to us when we picked up the call was just this immense grieving and sense of loss that Shakespeare in the Park wasn't happening. And so we knew we just had to had to meet that. And luckily, we had already been in conversation with Elliot and the folks at WNYC. So this just felt like kind of a perfect moment to come together. And we really, it was clear that we also shared a lot of these values around how to, what are the stories of New York City? how to hold those up in this time and how to offer a reflection of what's happening now, but also a sense of what is this great tradition of gathering together and listening to these beautiful stories. I was curious what this partnership meant for the future of both their organizations. Well, I hope we get to do more. The public theater has been around for so long and has such a great legacy, and it just felt like the right partner for public radio. They tell so many stories. We tell a lot of stories. The marriage of the two, I think, I hope has a bright future. Oscar Eustace had said at the beginning of our partnership that they'll only go forward if the first thing you do in a partnership doesn't suck. So um, (laughs) I think we've done that. I hope that we continue. And I hope people really enjoy Richard II on the radio. Yeah, I think we would we would echo all of that. I think the the opportunity to work together is such a dream. And you know, how can all of us really think differently about how we're serving our city in this time and really work together to do that because we can't do it alone. The needs are so different, they're so great. And it can feel really overwhelming to be working in our little silos. And I think the way that the city is going to heal is through our stories. And so I hope that we'll continue to, to tell those and amplify those in the year to come. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. 
We will be seeing the effects of the pandemic for years to come, but one major consequence has been the employment imbalance between men and women. Fair Play author and philanthropy advisor Eve Rodsky spoke with our resident gender equity expert, Kartika Roy, about the role of care in the family and how it's been affected by the pandemic. Eve, thank you for being here on the Fast Break podcast with me and welcome to the show. Oh my gosh. Anytime I can see you during the day on Zoom, it makes me happy. Well, likewise, (laughs) Um, I I feel the same way. So I want to dive into the questions, but before we do, could you tell the origination story for Fair Play? I guess they say that research is really me-search, right? And I mean, I definitely did not set out to become an expert on the gender division of labor, AKA the mental load, AKA emotional labor, AKA the second shift, whatever term, my favorite happens to be invisible work because we'll unpack why I think we probably both like that term best. But this all came about nine years ago and it was just the text my husband Seth sent me. I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. He regrets sending that text so much, but, but, <laughs> He understands it did change the trajectory of my life. And I think that, you know, in a time, a pandemic time, it's often interesting to think about periods of real lows can end up being periods of profound growth. Mm. And for me and my partnership, it ended up being that. But on that day that I got that text from Seth, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. It felt a lot like what's happening today, where the space-time continuum is collapsing on all of us. I had a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car. I just had my second son, Ben. I had a toddler and a toddler transition program, which in America, because we value care, right? Those programs last seven minutes. I used to say I'd opted out of the, of the workforce to start my own firm, but now I say I was forced out of the workforce. I, I think language matters. And so I remember I had a pen that was sort of stabbing me between the legs every time I would hit a stop sign, picking up Zach. It was, it was in the midst of this chaos that Seth decides to say, you know, basically that I failed at being the fulfiller of his smoothie needs, um, or at least that's how I read the text. And I pulled over, which you don't do in LA. We take traffic very seriously here. What I was thinking that day, besides the obvious that how cliche that my marriage is going to end over off-season blueberries was... <laughs> That, you know, this was not what I was reflecting on after basically almost a decade of marriage and and two kids later that I did not have the career and marriage combo I thought I was going to have. And more importantly, I had become the default, or as I call in fair play, the she-fault for literally every single household and domestic task for my family, maybe except for paying bills, which is the patriarchal one I don't want women to give up. And so... It was a really hard time for me. And I think the two things I will leave you with on this point was that I had two privileges where this shouldn't have happened to me. One, I'm a product of a single mother. And so psychologists would often call me a parental child. I was my mother's partner. I helped her pay the utility bills, remind her of eviction notices that would come under our door, put my disabled brother to bed when she worked late nights. So kind of, I vowed vowed from an early age that I would have an equal partner in life. Mm. And more importantly, I'm a Harvard trained mediator. So I'm literally trained to use my voice. So I think I realized that if this was happening to me, Mm. this was probably happening to other women. And that was the quest. That was the question I went out to discover and to ask about nine years ago after that day on the side of the road. The thing that was so profound for me when I met you, I often had this feeling as a breadwinner mom, and my husband is a stay-at-home dad and has been for 12 years, 
if I was male, I would not have to do all the things that I do for the house. Mm -hmm. And that had been a common argument between us. And when I read your book and the cards, it actually put a structure, a system around what I was feeling. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that we all have been conditioned, right, to make lists. And so I think um, what was interesting about fair play, which as you said, is a metaphor. It's an invitation. Mm -hmm. I'm a mediator. So I like to have gamification. So fair play is a metaphor. It's a game. It's a hundred cards and you, you play, you, you get buy-in for what you value for your family and who's in charge using an ownership mindset. And we can unpack that. So I opened up Excel one day and by the end of nine months, I had 98 tabs in the should I do spreadsheet with, you know, traditional things like, you know, school lunches taking about 15 minutes. So it became this beautiful nine months. I finally get the courage to send it up off to Seth with no context, which is great as a mediator, you know, really taking my own advice from what I do for my day job, uh, just no context and the subject line to Seth can't wait to discuss. And you can imagine that, you know, the 19 million megabyte spreadsheet with no context went over pretty poorly. I got an emoji back, the monkey that's covering its eyes. Mm -hmm. And why I say that is because this idea that Seth didn't want to see, you know, is a see no evil, right? The, this invisible work. Well, that day I really realized that I had a choice. I could resign myself to doing it all because I tried for nine months to put the invisible and made it visible. Or I could um, get my ass in gear and become my own client. And I started to treat my home as my most important organization. That's when things started to change because it gave me the biggest aha moment of the whole eight years, which was that lists alone don't work, mm -hmm. but systems do. Mm -hmm. So that's a great lead in for a question I wanted to ask you, which is that before the pandemic ever started, you were saying that women's time is like yeah. and not diamonds. So can you talk about what you mean by that? Yes, I can. Thank you for letting me unpack that. This was a big finding for me a finding that I wasn't expecting. And it's why I ultimately chose to write to women and not to couples. Mm. And it was this idea that we know, and you talk about this beautifully, about how women's time is, is not valued in the workplace. Uh, we, we have serious pay equity issues for an hour of a woman's time compared to an hour of a man's time. And it gets worse for women of color. But what I wasn't prepared for was watching women devalue their own time. Mm especially around the home. And that came about when I asked, why are you the one picking up the call from the school when your kid is sick? Mm. And so often I would hear three things. I would hear, well, my job is more flexible or my husband makes more money than me. And also flexibility is in the eye of the beholder. So what you see in science is in the studies is that women consider their job more flexible regardless of whether it is. If they're a doctor and their husband's a professor, they say their job is more flexible. If they're the professor and their husband's the doctor, they say their job is more flexible. Mm. The other thing women were saying to me was, I'm a better multitasker, right? Women are just, that's our superpower. We're wired differently for care. So for that one, I went to a top neuroscientist who said something to me that actually changed my life. What he said was, imagine Eve, we men, could convince you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for half of the population, right? I don't even have to ask you to do it. You've been conditioned to think you're better at it. So you're actually happy wrapping the birthday gift for some kid you don't even know, right? Where I get much more choice over how I use my time to get tenure, to work out, to finish, you know, the PowerPoint deck that I need to finish. Yeah. Finally, the most popular was when women said to me in the time it takes me to tell him or they what to do 
I might as well just do it myself. And we guard men's time as finite, like diamonds. We can't live like that. You can't actually live like that because the outcomes in individual marriages and to society, we ultimately end up building the backs of society on the unpaid labor of women and the undervalued labor of women of color. Mm -hmm. And what that does, it leads us to places just like we are today, which is what you and I have been warning about for years. Mm -hmm. And that's look what happens when there's any glitch in the matrix. Two million women will be forced out of the workforce at the end of this first wave of this pandemic. And it will take us at least 10 years to get them back. Like one of the things I say, not only an issue of fairness, but it's a massive economic opportunity. We just lost a whole bunch of economic growth and it's going to take us at least 10 years to build that back. Do you see your stat for the listeners that blew my mind yesterday about if we keep going at this rate of forcing women out of the workforce, how much wages we lose every year? That was an unbelievable statistic. 64.5 billion every year will be lost because of the pandemic in parents' wages of people leaving the workforce. I mean, if that doesn't convince us that unpaid labor is the issue, the value of care, whether it's being the tooth fairy or being the transporter of your kids to school, that we have to invite men to the table. That this is a business issue. Yeah, and hopefully the silver lining of the pandemic and the economic fallout will actually be that we catapult those solutions forward, that they're no longer optional or nice to have. Just on that note, you know, unpaid labor isn't really counted as part of the GDP. Maybe it will be now going forward. (laughs) We know that if women in the U.S. were compensated for their unpaid work, they would have been paid $1.5 trillion last year. So in 2019, pre-COVID. So clearly unpaid labor generates economic value. So why are we just now starting to recognize the value of unpaid labor to our economy? We've been living under the assumption that women's time is infinite. So if, if we have infinite time, it wouldn't matter how many times we had to pick up our kids from school or drive them somewhere or finish a homemade popsicle stick jewelry box at midnight for our child when they're sleeping. But sadly, we don't. And so what I will say is that the silver lining of the pandemic is that the invisible is now literally visible on Zoom. And we've been able to challenge so many of our assumptions about what it means to be a working parent in the United States or a lot of other of these developed nations as well. What I want to end on is a world where when you can move to an ownership mindset the same way you do at work, where you don't wait to be told what to do, where you get context but not control, and you can own something from start to finish. Doesn't mean you don't get stakeholder buy-in, but you understand what you're doing there. You don't walk into your boss's office and say, hey, what should I be doing today? I'll just wait here until you tell me what to do. And so what I will say is the ownership mindset builds off of what we know from workplaces, that intrinsic motivation comes with context and not control. And that's why things were not working for men, because what I found In 500 men and women interviews that mirrored the U.S. Census, now even more, was that when I asked people over and over again, how did mustard get in their refrigerator? It was a classic organizational management systems failure, where women would tell me that their second son, Johnny, likes yellow mustard with their protein. Otherwise, he chokes. That's the conception. They would survey stakeholder buy-in at the planning stage for whatever other groceries the family needed, including the mustard, and monitor that mustard for when it's running low. That's what we call planning. And then men would step in at the execution to go purchase the yellow mustard. Mm. And then you listeners, you guys, you're you're bringing home spicy Dijon every freaking time. And I asked you for French's yellow, right? And aren't you blind? Haven't you been sitting here for seven years? Mm. This was not a fight about mustard 
or off-season blueberries where we started. This is a fight about accountability and trust. And so once you can move the conception, planning, and execution to one person as an ownership mindset so that you always know what's happening in advance, that's the beauty of a system and not a list. Mm -hmm. If I have to remind you to do something, it does not make my life any better. It actually makes it worse because not only am I reminding you, but now I'm mad when you brought me home the spicy Dijon and I asked for a French's yellow. <laughs> I love that. Eve, thank you so much for making time to sit down with me today and share more of your work. It's been great to hear you. And I hope that everybody who doesn't already have your book, which by the way is a New York Times bestseller, will check it out. It's fair play. And then also buy the cards, which are awesome. So thank you again. And thank you for your work. And honestly, thank you for you. The beauty of this pandemic is we got to become friends uh, and work on some bigger care issues together. And I feel so lucky to know you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. I hope to see you next year, which I think we all hope will be a little more normal. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Bizram. <laughs>